This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, we Americans value freedom. We point to the birth of our democratic republic, our, quote, shining city upon a hill whose beacon light guides freedom-loving people everywhere, unquote, as Ronald Reagan put it, as the culmination of an age of enlightenment and a global triumph of liberty. But any honest reflection on American freedom considers that we are also a country born of ruinous colonization and slavery. America's founders and leaders have doled out freedom in fits and starts. The enjoyment of liberty has been undependable for many of us, to say the least and never truly paired with equality. Professor Tyler Stovall teaches history at Fordham University. His new book is White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea. In it, he defines white freedom as, quote, the belief and practice that freedom is central to white racial identity and that only white people can or should be free. White Freedom charts how the heralded Age of Enlightenment that inspired the United States, an age dedicated to the ideals of liberty, progress, scientific inquiry, constitutional government, and separation of church and state, coincided with the black slave trade that dug, planted, harvested, and built its foundation. The implied racism of the subtitle is real and central to the idea of American freedom, one created for white men. We endure that legacy, some more than others, to this day. Stovall's work considers how we might create and realize actual universal freedom. In this conversation, Professor Stovall discusses white freedom with Christiana Obi-Sumner, a community organizer and activist, and the CEO of Epiphanies of Equity, a social equity consulting firm. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on January 19th. Hello! Thank you. (laughs) It's so great to see you today and to talk about this book, so this book, White Freedom. Um, This was actually, we were talking a little bit in the green room before, It, it looks... It looks like a big book, but it really um, reads really well. And so I sort of read it in a weekend. Um, so for folks who are considering, should I buy this book? I mean, this is a, it's a fascinating study and there's so much to discuss. So I guess my first question is like, what would you say, like for folks who are thinking about buying when I click that little green link, like what is the primary argument and or description of white freedom? Okay, well, thank you, Christiania, for that question. And thanks to all the listeners, uh, both in Seattle. Hello, Seattle. 
And wherever you might be, it's really nice to be invited to the, the town hall of Seattle. So to, to answer your question, let me just make a couple points. The basic argument is very simple. In fact, you can really sum it up in one sentence. To be free is to be white. To be white is to be free. Now, let me expand on that a bit. Um, partly, this book arose out of the idea that there has often been seen uh, to be a fundamental contradiction in many Western societies. And I chose France and the United States as primary examples of that, but there are others as well. There's a contradiction between societies on the one hand that embrace freedom as their primary value, and that on the other hand practice massive racial discrimination, so that freedom is not extended to everybody, freedom exists with conditions. So at a certain point I decided I wanted to explore why there was this contradiction and Basically, because I'm not really comfortable with the idea of contradictions and paradoxes, I wanted to see what is the underlying unity between these two social practices, between these ideas. And what I discovered was you could have freedom coexisting with racism if freedom is defined in racial terms. In other words, if it is defined as something that only belongs to people of one racial group, then all of a sudden that really gets rid of the contradiction. So if freedom is really white freedom, then the absence of freedom for people that are not white is not a contradiction, but is simply part of the nature of freedom. And so, so that is what I found, and that's the basic argument of the book. And I really try and, and make it work through ultimately about 200 years of Western history from the Enlightenment down to the present day. Yes, and you sure, and you really did. I mean, and it's one of those things that I... I it, it was very affirming to read about the Enlightenment sort of being the impetus for this because it's something that, especially in studying these conversations, you see the Enlightenment, but it just sort of feels in sort of a way that this, to see it sort of laid out historically was really affirming in terms of things. Yeah, thank you. And if I can just add to that, I think we all have this image of the Enlightenment as this period of great intellectual achievement and a period that really focuses on, on liberty. But as many scholars have pointed out, the era of the Enlightenment was also the era of the height of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. So, um, and if you look at the, the Salon, for example, that, that French intellectuals uh, frequented during the Enlightenment, the, the, the social uh, sites of Enlightenment thought, many of those Salons were in effect funded by profits from the slave trade, which paid for a huge amount of the economy of France and other Western countries in the 18th century. So slavery was fundamental to these societies and also is fundamental to the Enlightenment itself. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. It brings up, especially um, being from Fordham and, and this being someone who does academia, it makes me think about academia itself, but Mm-hmm. Different conversation, right? I think um... <laughs> different conversation, but an important one as well. Though the role of race in the, the the structuring and the profits of of American universities, it seems like every other day you find another university discovering that much of its endowment came from slavery and the slave trade, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was looking up your background as a writer and historian too, and like you have several pieces juxtaposing the United States and France. Can you tell me the story of how you mm-hmm. began the like, comparative studies between the two? Certainly. Well, I like to joke that in some ways it, it started at the beginning. I was actually born in a little town on the Ohio River called Gallipolis. And if you know Latin, it means city of the Gauls. And I only realized much later in life uh, that it was a town formed by uh, refugees from the French Revolution in the 18th century. 
My, I was born there because my parents were living in West Virginia and they wanted their first child born on free soil. So they crossed the Ohio River just like uh, as in Uncle Tom's Cabin. But I can also say that I was born in a place that was shaped by French interest. Uh, more importantly, when I went to graduate school, for a variety of reasons, I decided to do European history and my advisor suggested I do France. I was not somebody that had a huge background in France. It had never been there before, basically, but it sounded interesting. And as I grew as a historian, I decided that one of the in most interesting ways of approaching history was comparative and international history. And it seemed to me that I could use both my training in French history and my background as an American to put into dialogue these two different national histories. And I found that they had a lot in common, as it turned out. Most importantly, both countries are countries where the idea of freedom is really paramount to their national identity. It's not just a value that they believe in, but in many ways to be French or to be American is to be free or to be striving for freedom. And so that was fascinating to me, the idea that, you know, you have these two countries that both share the same value, they deal with it in very different ways, but for both of them, freedom is, you know, absolutely intrinsic to who they are as a nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of this book, I feel like that as I was reading about sort of white, you know, the white freedom in the, as a concept, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about how I've heard this term around freedom today, you know, and uh, it, how much time is a flat circle? Because there are certain vignettes you had in the book that felt way too familiar to today. <laughs> in the introduction, you're talking yeah, about the result of the Emancipation Hall in the Senate building, and then you think to, like, January 6th events, and, like, yeah. you know, how they sort of, again, that sort of white freedom, sort of wanting to support the sort of white to you know that white supremacy there was the later conversation about the importance of monuments and how they equal power and mm -hmm. i think about like the fight to preserve monuments that represent white freedom mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. now especially in the south there was the conversation you had about the white philadelphia transportation employee who threw something at the liberty bell because they hired eight right, black right. and then there was like the part you talked about the southern conversion uh, to Republicanism and Ronald Reagan's election as sort of like this fear response to civil rights. So I'm like thinking about this in terms of like what just happened in Georgia, what just happened in the last four years, mm -hmm. what just happened in the Senate, you know, and I'm like, what is, you know, it made me think, like, what is the impetus for this defense mm -hmm. of white, like, so we have the white freedom, but what is the impetus for the defense of white freedom? Like, is it egoism or is it protection of the social construct or? Mm -hmm. The relativity of truth and understanding, like what leads to these sort of violent reactions? Because I think especially as a consultant mm -hmm. and an organizer doing equity work, I come up against that reaction a lot. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, you put a lot out there. If you will, I'd like to start with the <laughs> Capitol building, um, because that's in many ways how I what inspired me to write this book, this whole debate that um, when it was revealed about 20 years ago that you know much of the building had been built by African slaves. Um, and yet this is a building that is often known as the Temple of Liberty, right? It really symbolizes American democracy. And this discovery was part and parcel of a larger series of discoveries of how many buildings that we think of as classic structures were actually built by slaves in early America. And so you had this debate about, okay, so how can we commemorate these slaves? And it was interesting because it was one of the few bipartisan efforts you've seen 
in Congress in the last 20 years. Both Democrats and Republicans agreed that they should have a space and they would call it Emancipation Hall. And this would be their way of honoring the slaves. And at one level, I thought, this is great. We're Democrats and Republicans working together to honor the slaves. And the slaves' contribution was was uh, significant. I mean, not only did they help build a lot of the, 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 the hall, but the statue of the, at the top of the building, the Statue of Liberty, as it's called, was designed by a black slave named Philip Reed. So this is one of the greatest representations of liberty in the country. It's designed by a slave. So they decide to name it Emancipation Hall. And my question is, okay, well, so why would you name a place built by slaves Emancipation Hall? I mean, they weren't emancipated. Why not name it Slave Hall if you really want to commemorate them and their past? And why was it impossible to do that? You know, which means why was it impossible to acknowledge the role of slavery in the building, not just of America in general, but the building of American freedom in particular and the making of America as a free society? So that's what really got me going. And then, of course, on January 6th, I remember watching the events, first of all, appalled, like most people were. But I also decided I wanted to find out why these people were there other than Trump told him to be there. Um, and I listened to the speeches they gave, and over and over again, they said they were there to preserve their freedoms, right, to preserve their rights. And one of the things that struck me in particular was that people talked about how the election was stolen, how their right to vote had been violated. These are people that are obeying the dictates of a Republican Party that has been engaged in massive voter suppression of people of color for years, right? And so the idea that people of color might have complaints about their votes being suppressed. It never seemed to be a factor. Uh, it was really all about white freedom that I saw. And so, you know, my, my sort of, the, the view of that event just two weeks ago really reaffirmed that, A, this is some deep stuff that goes all the way back to the building of this building. And B, it still has, a, it still has major legs. It still has a lot of vitality and dynamism in our current crisis. Uh, we historians are not used to writing things that are topical. Right. So um, but in this case, it seems as though it did happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like it, it continues to happen. Like there was um, this powerful photo in the book of a person, um, a, a black man being held back and hit with an American flag. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. I remember on January 6th, there was the video of a security right. officer being held back and hit with an American flag. And there's sort of this piece where it's like, what, you know, is it, you know, what is, you know, I guess, you know, and there's a part of it that makes me wonder, like, where, you know, is, especially in, in sort of seeing across history, like, it, is it, is this coming from sort of a singular place, like a singular emotion? Is it coming from different sort of reasons, like, like, mm -hmm. sort of what is, what is this impetus to white freedom, like to the, to the conflict? Yeah sort of activates that sort of action? Yeah, well, that is it's a great question. And let me try and answer it because I think it is still in some ways even more prescient now than it has been historically. Why is there this focus on white freedom? Why is there this insistence on creating spaces that symbolize freedom that are spaces for whites only or for virtually whites only? And because images like the one you talked about, and it was in, uh, the, it was in Boston during the busing controversy of the 1970s, happened time and time again. I mean, one of the images I have in my book deals with uh, people that were literally lynched. Uh, they were uh, black men that were literally hung from a Statue of Liberty 
in Missouri, right? And the images of it is just amazing. It's hard to believe. But I think what, you know, part of my idea of what's going on and what's going on today is you have a lot of people for whom the current social political order has been very terrible. People have lost jobs, they've lost income, they've lost status. And for a certain class of people, the one thing they have left is their whiteness, their white privilege. And yet, if you talk about America as a nation where supposedly by the end of the, by, by 2040 or 2050, a majority of people will be people of color. If you talk about the increasing role of people of color throughout every aspect of American society, this is threatening. So just to give one example, uh, as people get older, many times, of course, they have to go into nursing homes or nursing care facilities. Many of these nursing care facilities throughout America and, in fact, throughout the world are run by Filipinas, right? For some reason, Filipinas have, in many ways, a very powerful uh, central position in that particular industry. So you think about an older white person who's been used to living life as a very powerful person, a very you know self-sufficient person. All of a sudden, at the end of their life, they're no longer self-sufficient. They're t- being taken care of by people whose culture is very different. And it feels very strange to them, right? It feels like they've lost power. They've lost, in effect, white privilege. So, I mean, that's one very small example of what's going on in America. But I think what you saw in a place like um, like, like the Capitol building on January 6th, and I heard people say, you know, I'm, I'm fighting for my children's future because at this point I don't see that they have a future. I think what they meant is they don't have a white future or a future of white privilege. And that is really, really threatening to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be this tension in sort of that like age old schoolyard thing. Like, well, if I get, you know, if you have some, then I have less. And so you mm-hmm. can't have any because then that means less for me. So this is mine. That's right. I think there is a lot of that. And, you know, mind you, it, it, it shows up in places that where people have lost income. I mean, if you look at what's happened with American capitalism over the last 40, 50 years, increasingly, you know, for example, unions have been to a large extent broken. And unions used to be one of the, the few things that institutions really stood up for working people. That's meant really lost of real incomes for lots of people. If you look at the cost that housing costs now, or transportation or raising children compared to what it was 50 years ago, it's been a real disadvantage for people. And, you know, they, they know life is worse. Uh, but so it's a question of who do you blame? And yet you uh, also, you look at a country that seems to give more uh, importance to diversity, multiculturalism, inclusion, and that becomes an easy target. Mm-hmm. And there's so many pieces of this too, that I see like in the intersections, like you're saying before, that I, a lot of the work they do around, you know, sort of where sort of this white supremacy culture comes in mm-hmm. is at this intersection of anti-racism uh, or racism and anti-blackness and disability justice. And so I think about in 2020, mm-hmm. this idea of primarily white freedom in not wanting to wear a mask. And, you know, I think that what has mm-hmm. been so frustrating, mm-hmm. the intersection for me, I'm hearing in my racial justice space hey, you know, black and brown folks are, I've heard everything from twice as likely to five times as likely, depending on who you're getting your statistics from, mm-hmm. um, to be contract COVID-19 or die. I'm also hearing in my disability justice space, disabled folks being deprioritized of care based on assumed prognosis. Mm-hmm. This sort of space at the intersection of that, of how many disabled black and brown folks are being deprioritized of care and therefore having higher rates of um, 
a diagnosis, if they even get a diagnosis or death. And mm-hmm. so there's even this piece where I'm thinking about like in the face of a global pandemic where it's like, you know, I always think in my head when I see it, it's like, you can die too. Like, but the, the, mm-hmm. the, perhaps that veil of like, eh, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, especially with the equity work, even here in liberal Seattle, I get that mm-hmm. sort of hmm. pushback. And so this, you know, it's definitely one of those sort of frameworks that I think can help to, um, you know, perhaps be a topic of conversation like you were saying in the book to lead to a conversation around sort of the understanding and con- construct of freedom. Well, yeah, thank you for bringing up the whole issue of masks, for example, because those are one <laughs> excellent example today of people's insistence on a certain kind of freedom that in some ways just makes no sense, right? I mean, I mean, I suppose in some ways the ultimate freedom is the freedom to die or the freedom to die when you wish. And in some ways, those who choose not to wear masks are in effect choosing that, right? Uh, it was also interesting that all those people that invaded the Capitol building two weeks ago chose not to wear masks because it made them a lot easier to identify and to arrest, right? <laughs> so so there, there's that dimension to it as well. But I, I think it's a really kind of gut reaction that, you know, government telling us what to do is impinging on our freedom. Now, mind you, many of the people that are making that argument come from places that are sort of net recipients of government aid. I mean, states like California, New York, and Washington pay more to the federal government they get, than they get back in, in social benefits. It's places like uh, Alabama, Mississippi, West Virginia, whose people complain endlessly about the burdens of government. When you look at actually the, the, the sort of the tax burden, they're subsidized by the federal government, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're poor. And yet they see themselves as oppressed by, by government, by authority. Um, you know, America is a country where there's basically a, at least one gun for every person in the country. So over 300 million guns, right? Uh, because the gun is seen as a symbol of freedom and personal autonomy. Now, what does that mean? Are you actually going to shoot somebody? Hopefully not. But just the idea that you have a gun, that you have the right to have a gun, is seen as an important kind of freedom. Um, but then as the saying goes, freedom for the wolves means death for the sheep, Right. Who's going to be the victim of that kind of freedom that you hold so dear? Mm-hmm. And I guess like a question that I have, I mean, there's sort of like a larger question of sort of like with white freedom, sort of in that larger constellation of like whiteness studies and critical mm-hmm. race theory, and white supremacy culture and colonization, sort of where white freedom fits into that constellation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And also sort of how you start talking about it. Like, how do you broach this topic when you're starting to see some of those things? Because I think that uh, one of the things that, you know, perhaps it's, this is me acknowledging that perhaps it is a bias, but one of the things that was terrifying for me was seeing, you know, some 75 million people who voted for someone who had impacts that were, um, definitely falling under this sort of idea of white freedom and the impact of, you know, are they thinking about the the at, at down down the stream who might mm-hmm. have to be who might be harmed uh, because of it? Well, Christiana, first of all, thank you for putting it so politely. I was <laughs> going to say that you have seventy four, seventy five million people that voted for a psychopath, right? Mm-hmm. 
And they did that largely knowing that he's a psychopath. And yet what he stood for meant that they, they didn't care, right? They would still wanted to support him. And that tr- to me is the truly scary thing about our, our political moment. But to go back to your earlier question, you were asking about sort of different influences on my work. I think whiteness studies was certainly a major influence uh, because in many ways, the book is all about an aspect of whiteness and white identity. And, you know, whiteness studies is really important because it argues that it's not only people of color that have a, a specific identity, white people have a specific identity as well, and that it's constructed in many different kinds of ways. So one of the debates um, I've looked into and is reflected in my book is to what extent are immigrants defined as white or how do they become white, right? And there are different approaches to that, especially looking at European immigration. There's one school that says, you know, for example, the Italians, Jews, Poles that came to America in the late 19th, early 20th century were not initially regarded as white. Uh, they had to sort of gradually be integrated into white culture. Another approach simply says, and this is the title of a book, White on Arrival, that once, even once they came to America, they were immediately regarded as white because they were not black. Okay, And that had uh, real uh, impacts. It meant, for example, they were able to vote at a time when virtually no African-Americans could vote without risking their lives. Italian-Americans could vote immediately once they got off the boat in New York or wherever they arrived. So white privilege was real in those situations. Um, and it's worth noting noting that when uh, European immigrants arrived, they arrived into a country that basically did not permit Chinese immigrants, thanks to the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. But they were allowed to come because they were seen as white or at least potentially white, or as some people put it, not quite white, right? So mm-hmm. just being able to come to America at all represented a kind of white privilege. Um, and that's, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot in terms of the Statue of Liberty, because one of the things I like to point out is that you have a statue that really commemorates immigration in a place where it was all about European immigration. You do not have a statue on Angel Island in San Francisco Bay where so many Chinese came to America. You do not have a statue on the, Latin, on the, the U.S.-Mexican border where so many Latin Americans came. And you certainly do not have a statue in a place like Charleston, South Carolina. That was the major port of the Middle Passage. In fact, one of the ironies of the Statue of Liberty is that New York City was one of the great slave ports in the era before the Civil War. And so having a statue that portrays New York as a place where free people came ignores a whole other history of people that came to America through New York Harbor as slaves. And so one of the things I would love to do, if I, if I was God and could wave my, my magic wand and make something happen, I would love to see another statue in New York Harbor about slavery, about slaves, about slave revolts, that example, for that, for example, that occurred in the city during the 18th century, about the, 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 the landing of slaves headed for uh, plantations in the South in New York Harbor. It, it would be, be a nice counterpoint to the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. I would love to see that, you know, especially when you're talking about sort of the um, that tension with like immigration. When I grew up in uh, South South Jersey, Philadelphia area. And so I grew up with other folks who they would talk mm-hmm, about that. Mm-hmm. I would talk about my history. And um, there was a, a town mm-hmm. in named Sadler town where uh, black folks through the great migration came and, um, with the blessing of 
a Quaker and a gift from the Lanai Lenape had this land and sort of built that space. And so there was always that conversation around like, well, but we are Sicilian. So when we came, we also had to be harmed or like, well, we're Irish, like we're Irish Catholic. So like, we really, like we were enslaved too. And so there was, but there was always a sort of conversation similar to what you're talking about, where it makes me think about like that white freedom, because it's like, I have to also not like, like you're saying like sort of like negative freedom, like free from, you know, mm-hmm. being challenged in my sort of narrative identity of oppression. Like I know like in racial justice spaces, they'll say, oh, they just want to be oppressed so bad. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sort of a piece of this of like, what is, you know, um, where do we help folks to see mm-hmm. that? And so I guess like my next question, especially here in Town Hall Seattle, mm-hmm. So as a, I love all of my clients, but as a social equity consultant in this in the Pacific Northwest, I can say that there is a lot of that sort of northern racism here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandma used to tell me, you know, everyone talks about how terrible it was for black folks having to uh, pick cotton and produce textiles in the South. But no one talks about how all of those textiles was bought by folks in the North. And mm-hmm. so there's definitely that sort of dynamic in Seattle where there's a lot of conversation about social equity. There's a lot of people who will you know, proclaims, it seems like you're saying with the Emancipation Proclamation, proclaim social equity, but then when it comes time for the transformative change to happen in that power shift dynamic, mm-hmm. then it gets to that sort of space of white freedom. What what have you seen in your research or across history that sort of addresses that sort of Northern racism dynamic? Mm-hmm. Well, I've certainly seen that in my research and also in my own personal life. But um, let's talk about my research first. The, the last chapter of the book deals with what I call the fall and rise of white freedom. First, with the civil rights movement and decolonization is massive challenges to the idea of white freedom and massive, you know, an emphasis that all people should be free, that freedom should truly be a universal value. But then, the, you know, and in many ways, the, the great turning point is 65. 1965 is the year by which time virtually all European colonies have won their independence. It's the year where the great voting and uh, civil rights acts have been passed. So in some ways, it forms a nice end to the story, except, of course, the story doesn't end there. Um, it used to be said that, for example, in the South, that if we can just move the civil rights movement to the North, then all of a sudden it will fail. And in fact, that is what happened. Um, one of the things I talk about is the whole history of busing. And for me, this is personal because I was actually living in Boston in the years when, when busing was really uh, debated hot and heavy. Um, went to pro-busing marches, pro-integration uh, marches. And I saw firsthand the tremendous white racist reaction against any kind of uh, equality uh, in terms of education for black students. And mind you, this was happening in the mid-1970s, the same years that Boston was preparing to celebrate the bicentennial of the American Revolution. So there was all this stuff about liberty, about commemorating America as a great experiment, while at the same time, black students who were going to be sent to uh, white high schools on the bus were being, buses were being firebombed, were being physically attacked. Um, And in many ways, it was every bit as violent as anything you saw in Mississippi. So, and this was in a very sophisticated uh, New England city 
one of the most liberal cities in the country. One of the one of the in fact, I think in 1972 was the only uh, state that voted for the Democrat George McGovern was Massachusetts. Right. So as famous as a very liberal city. But once you started talking about true integration, which meant true sharing of power, that's when things got really rough. And what's fascinating about that is that up until that point, American schools had become increasingly were becoming increasingly integrated, even in the South. The successful fight against busing in Boston and New York and other northern cities really ended the struggle for school integration. So that to this day, in many ways, schools are just as segregated as they were in the 1950s in America. So this was, and I, I, I really emphasize the ports of education because the civil rights movement began with Brown versus the Board of Education, Supreme Court decision. In many ways, the quest for equal education was absolutely central to the civil rights movement. And the defeat of school integration was in many ways the defeat of the movement as a whole, and it happened in the North. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see this all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is just like affirming. I'm just mm-hmm. affirming. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's it's a great story to share, too, because I think that, you know, they think about, you talk, talked about the Ohio River. I, I've lived all over the place. I lived in Louisville, Kentucky for some Oh, okay. Um, and l- when we were living there, it was between like 2004 and 2010. Mm-hmm. And they were still having busing to desegregate. And even in the early, the, the, the late aughts, arguing whether or not, oh, well, why do we have to do this? Because it was the, it was, you know, 2008 and the Obama election and, you know, racism is over now. The president's lost. <laughs> um, but, you know. Well, my, my favorite, my favorite saying of Malcolm X is don't talk to me about the South. Don't you know everything South of the Canadian border is South. <laughs> that is great. I also, oh my gosh, how is we this? Time is flying. Okay, penultimate question. So you're talking okay. about um, the last chapter and mm-hmm. um, talking about sort of like how there's sort of this this evolution, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is a good way of putting this evolution of how this happened. You talked specifically, too, around how the like more explicit forms of racism, I think, that people mm-hmm. are in sort of explicit forms of white supremacy, people are expecting sort of became sort of a no-no after mm-hmm. the World War II happened, mm-hmm. um, going into the civil rights movement in Vietnam and things like that. But now it's, you know, obviously we're seeing this is coming mm-hmm. back. So sort of, see, you know, I am a true believer of we can learn so much from our history. So I have two less learned from our history questions for you. Okay. So the second, this, the, you know, the, the, like I said, the penultimate one is what is a potential pitfall or warning your study of this history shows us could potentially happen in the future or, and, or what lesson or takeaway would you share for folks today who read this book and are like, this is terrible. How do we address this? How do we dismantle mm-hmm. this white freedom thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, I mean, it's a hard question because one of the things I show much to my own personal chagrin is that white freedom has a real strong history and a real a powerful legacy down to this day. And if I had any doubts about that, the events of the last couple of weeks have really affirmed that point. So, um, but I think emphasizing, you know, time and time again, the way that universal freedom has benefits for all. I mean, if you read the literature on school busing for integration, study after study showed that all students benefited from an integrated school. 
uh, white students did not lose out. They actually benefited. And yet it comes back to the point you were making earlier about people seeing a zero-sum situation so that if black and brown people do better than white people inevitably have to do worse. I think we simply have to hammer home the fact that that is not true. That And you can see it in so many different ways that um, a more diverse America is a more successful er uh, America. To make one point, for example, when I was a student, uh, when I was a professor at Santa Cruz, uh, and I also taught at Berkeley at some point, over time you saw that uh, the, the, the number of students of color applying to attend those universities was higher, as were the, as were the SAT scores. So the addition of more students of color of a more diverse student body was actually raising educational standards. It wasn't lowering them. And yet, of course, that's always been the great fear of integration, that student of, students of color would make things worse for white students. Quite the contrary, it was making them better. Now, it's hard to convince somebody who doesn't want to see, as the saying goes, none are so blind as those who will not see. But I think you have to hammer home that point with, ho with the hope that eventually it will sink in. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess my final question for you. So you talk not extensively, but you sort of throughout the book sort of continue to make sort of this, um, this sort of like, a, you know, disclaimer that you're not saying that freedom on the whole um, as a, as a, as a idea is, is bad. And so that folks who fight for freedom um, f from oppression say, mm -hmm. of white supremacy culture, like, that is that is totally a thing. Um, and so I guess my across history question for you mm -hmm. end on is across history, what is the one through line, uh, whether it's to white freedom or to just sort of this dynamic that that is that white freedom is sort of a cradle, part of the cradle of that people fighting for equity and freedom today, you know, uh, should consider in their work when they may be burned out or losing hope due to this white freedom dynamic, um, I, I, everything from big occupying national monuments to mm -hmm. demanding space and labor and comfort in our social and interpersonal relationships. Okay. Well, thank you for that question. And let me just start off by saying, another interview at one point asked me, given the, the problematic history of the term freedom that I talk about, do we need another term? Should we invent another word for it or another concept, of, a way of describing for it, describing it? And I thought about it and decided ultimately no, for the simple reason that too many people in our own communities and our own history have died, have fought and died for this idea of freedom. Mm -hmm. So, and I think it's really important. I mean, I wrote a book about white freedom, but that is not the whole story of freedom. It's also important to think about all the people in our communities that have given absolutely everything. To, to create a world where their children could live as free people, no matter who and where who they were and where they came from. And I think ultimately we have to honor that because that is our legacy and that is an important legacy. And it's, an, it's, it's a legacy for America and the world as a whole and has to be cherished and it has to be preserved. So, so I guess that would be my answer. Yes. Yes. I, was it, I'm not going to misquote him, but the, the whole we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I'm, I was supposed to end at 6.40, so I don't know if I have more time for questions or this is question and answer period. Um, but I am so happy that we got to talk today and especially around this book. I think, again, this is a book that it took me just a weekend to read through it, um, although it's me and I like to read. And so I'm not 
totally not putting a judgment out there saying that is a litmus. Um, but I think that it's definitely a book that um, Seattle is full of folks doing equity work, especially around racial equity work. So it's mm -hmm. definitely something mm -hmm. that I would suggest. And I guess, you know, okay, I have one more question. I guess because I just okay. have to ask. <laughs> but like, especially as a social equity consultant and community organizer, if you were to take this work and apply it, like mm -hmm. at, in a contract or in a strategy for social change, what is like one strategy that you would say that you saw, that you talk about in this book that folks should really look into? Okay, well, I talked about education is key to the demands for equal education is key to the civil rights movement. But the other thing that's really important and is something that is actually doable right now is preserving and expanding voting rights for all communities. And I'm hoping that one of the first things that President Joe Biden does like tomorrow at 7 a.m. is, well, I guess he can't do it. He has to be inaugurated first. But too bad he could do that before, <laughs> is reaffirm the Voting Rights Act, which was pretty much destroyed by a Supreme Court decision a few years ago, and really put that back in power. And do first of all, it, it'll be a benefit to the Democrats as a party, but more importantly, it will be a very concrete and extremely important step in guaranteeing freedom for all. I would love to see the you know the uh, the vote in presidential elections granted in Puerto Rico and Washington D.C., for example. Ultimately, I would love to see something like you know the abolition of the Senate. I mean, what sense does it make that California and Wyoming have the same number of electoral votes? both in the electoral college. It makes no sense whatsoever, right? These are all structures that were built to ensure white freedom, basically. And I would love to see all those dismantled. But let's start with voting rights, because that really is crucial. It's the key to everything else. Yeah, so so we have our calls to action now. We have voting mm -hmm. rights, we have mm -hmm. ab abolitionism, we have all the things. It's great. Um, what, is, what is sort of, I want to just leave space at this end of the piece for any last thoughts, words, takeaways, reflections that you have for our time today. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you again for inviting me and for reading my book. It's something I'm very passionate about because I feel that freedom should belong to everybody. And in detailing the history of something like white freedom, I'd hope to achieve a situation where people realize just how fragile freedom is and how all the more important it is all the more important that people do their best to preserve it at all levels because it is our future. Mm-hmm. I'm so appreciative. I'm so appreciative of the work that you did and the work that you continue to do on the subject. And I hope that folks get to read it soon. And there's also, I was trying to see, there is a question okay. in the chat. Um, the And it's only one question. So y'all, mm. y'all can ask questions. Um, so <laughs> this question, <laughs> from Stibahan says, um, hopefully I said your name right. I don't think I know much of the history of French slave ownership. Can you talk about the French slave trade and development mm -hmm. of law and slavery in France? Okay. Wonderful question. Well, let me point out that this is something that a lot of people don't really associate with France. And yet France's main colony until the beginning of the, of the 19th century, was the country that's now known as Haiti, and under the French was known as Saint-Domingue. Saint-Domingue was probably the, the most profitable con uh, colony in the history of the world. And I say that, you know, knowing how big a statement that it is, but it's really true. I mean, the, the, the major commodity that slaves produced in the Caribbean was, of course, sugar. Um, it was the sugar, and Saint-Domingue was the sugar colony par excellence. 
It produced as much money as all the rest of the Caribbean combined in the 18th century. Something like one out of every three jobs in France, metropolitan France, European France, was in one way or another attached to the sugar slave economy. So it was, in some ways, the most profitable colony the world has ever seen. And it was a huge, had a huge impact on France. It was also the world's greatest slave revolt because the, the slaves of Saint-Domingue revolted in 1791 and they managed to win their freedom in spite of the fact that Napoleon attacked the island more than once and tried to destroy them. But they managed to uh, achieve their freedom. It became the, the one truly successful slave revolt in modern world history. Now, in doing so, they suffered terribly. The people of independent Haiti suffered terribly. The French imposed a, a, a financial uh, burden on them, a financial uh, uh, indemnity, saying that they had to pay for all the French property they had, they had seized. Not a word about the French paying for all the, the, the seizure of their own personal property, namely their own bodies, for centuries. Um, Haiti did not end up paying paying off that loan, it was not finally forgiven until about literally 10 years ago. So that means for 200 years, the Haitians were paying the French because of the, of the history of slavery. This is just how bad these things can get, right? <laughs> I mean, I tell people that nobody believes it, but it's true. Sometimes these stories are just is this, there's so much to unpack. We have other questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that helped. That does, hopefully, yeah, that definitely helped me. Um, someone says, thank you for the discussion. Kelly says, thank you for the discussion. Could you talk about the other side of the equation, blackness equaling incarceration? Mm, okay, absolutely. Well, um, and let me, let me go back again to two weeks ago where you had this, this invasion by an overwhelmingly white crowd. Of, of the Capitol building. I mean, I think one of the re reactions that a lot of black people like myself had was that if these had been Black Matter, Black Lives Matter demonstrators, they would have all been thrown in prison. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't have had a situation where people were waiting to identify them and so on and so forth. So that's one sort of small example of white freedom versus black incarceration, right? But of course, um, it goes further than that. I mean, I think in America, at least, one of the points of incarceration was that was one way of depriving black people of the benefits of emancipation, because it was written into uh, American law that all the rights of freedmen were not granted to, to people who were imprisoned, right? So guess who ended up in prison? Uh, black people. And so the history of incarceration of blacks really goes back to, as many things in American history go back to, the, the desire to, in effect, preserve slavery. Think about what, what black people did in chain gangs in the South of the 19th century. They worked. And in fact, they worked in many ways the same kinds of jobs, the same kind of labor that slaves would have worked in. So when we talk about the whole issue of black incarceration today, I would just emphasize that it has a very long history. And in many ways, it is related to the history of slavery in this country. Yeah. I also appreciate that answer. I, I um, One of the pieces that I did i just i graduated my master's of public administration and in my thesis i talked about sort of the process by which prisons became privatized mm -hmm. and then, mm -hmm. you know well first war on poverty and blackness and then they became privatized and then they became racial uh, real estate investment trust or rets and then we started becoming publicly mm -hmm. traded 
stock market. And then there started to be a whole entire lobby, like with a geo group that goes around and lobbies for harsher criminal justice, uh, criminal punishment Mm -hmm. laws so that there's more folks in the prison so that they can make more money for the rents so that people can get bigger dividends. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a piece, I forget where it was. It was in one of the places like uh, Montana or somewhere like that, where they had a prison that they got fined because they didn't have as they, they had empty beds. Um, and so I think about sort of the, the purpose of a, of, of red, a real estate investment trust was so that people can invest in their community and build like a library. Mm-hmm. Not so mm-hmm. that they could build a private prison that's going to be publicly traded for billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's definitely this piece of it. And then I, I think I, I read how like geo group and the other one, um, the other big one they can't think of right now, they both donated like a quarter million dollars to mm. 2016 election. Um, wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so in other words, black people need to go out and commit more, commit more crime so these companies can profit. Well, and like, you know, especially with history, how is this not sort of sundown laws and, right. and right. convict leasing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Questions in the chat. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a great question. Um, this question is from Angela. There's two from Angela. So we'll re- read the first one. The first one says, what is one or two or three, in quote, in parentheses, what is one or two or three things we can do to promote and safeguard our freedom? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one thing I already said was voting. Voting is absolutely fundamental. And I think of, you know, for example, what happened in Georgia earlier this month and what a tremendous change that was and what an impact that's going to have. And, you know, we're going to see this impact for for years now. I think also fighting, you know, and in many ways I'm picking up the whole sort of mantle of the civil rights movement, fighting for quality education. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the, the fact that America has largely turned its back on school integration is a crime. It is a crime against black and brown people. And we should not sit back and be silent about it. We have to demand the rights that we are paying for as citizens to quality education. And I think more generally, I mean, one of the things that struck me and a lot of other, uh, I think black people in particular about the Black Lives Matter movement and the reaction to George Floyd was the fact that so much of the reaction came from white people that it, there were so many white people out there that seemed like for the first time saw that there were major racial equity problems in this country, often life and, life and death problems. And I think keeping that going is really important, that talking to one's neighbors, one's friends, one, one's parents, so on and so forth, about the needs for racial equity and how that will make us all a better country and how ultimately it will fulfill precisely the dreams of freedom that this country was supposedly founded on. So that's that's just a, just a few things. I mean, I'm sure that lots of people can think of other things that, you know, that'll make a difference because there's many different ways in which we can intervene in this current moment. And by the way, let me just give a shout out for the fact that this country did get, did get rid of Donald Trump, which, was, <laughs> which is a major, major big deal. I'm very happy about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, and everything's flipped too. And I would say too, I, I love like also talking about like discussing segregation because in another sort of way, there's segregation for black and brown disabled students. We mm-hmm. talk about the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at how many folks end up in the criminal legal system for black and brown folks 
who are disabled, who can't have access, you know, are not giving the access and accommodations that they need, or even the school to institutionalization pipeline, which we don't mm -hmm. talk about for black and brown students. Uh, well, for example, my wife's a specialist in public health. And you can imagine how busy she is now during the pandemic. Oh. But, the, <laughs> but the pandemic is really illustrating the, the discriminatory nature of our, quote, public health system to the extent that we actually do have a public health system, which is a matter of some debate. Uh, and the need for a truly public health system well, that will ensure the health of, of people. I mean, I'm in California right now. It's virtually impossible to get a rapid COVID test, right? A test that well, you don't have to wait for like five days for. It's virtually impossible. Why is that, right? There's no no justification whatsoever in a country that has lost 400,000 people to this pandemic, that the, that the country shouldn't be taking out everything it can. They say it's hard to get people vaccinated. Why isn't the National Guard going door to door and vaccinating people, right? Right, right? why not? I, you know, we need answers to these questions because it is literally a matter of life and death. Right. I think I read somewhere they said like what like a a person in Los Angeles dies of COVID every ten minutes or something right. like that. Where right. it is, it's just insane, right? It's a lot. I have another sort of mamma jamma question for you. Okay. <laughs> How this is a big one? How do we change the minds of our relatives and friends that have <laughs> internalized our current racist norms? Okay, that is a big one. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as somebody who has a sister who voted for Donald Trump, let me tell you, it's, um, I, I live this on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the first thing you have to realize is that, you know, you can't always do that, right? Some people's minds are just closed. But I think you can, you know, you can make a difference just by saying you're always willing to talk, you're not cutting people off, and pointing out why this is so important. And using real examples from real people's lives, including our own lives, including their lives, for example, to, to make the point that this is, you know, these questions are really important. So and I guess the main thing is just don't give up. Right. Because especially when you're talking about dealing with people, you've been fighting these battles for years. You know, it is easy to give up. And yet, you know, we don't have the luxury of doing that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, I was going to wear a shirt that had the. Otto Lord quote that uh, self care is an act of political war warfare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's at least what I tell myself um, in my bank account when I buy Sephora a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's all the questions that we had. I guess, was there anything in these questions that just to make sure that there's any new sort of pieces that came up? I know for me, what sort of came up in this is sort of. Sort of like you're saying how like not to give up but what does that endurance look like and i think yeah. to your point around history um there's there's a lot of perseverance that our elders and ancestors did before they had like mm -hmm. the internet and mm -hmm. you know doom scrolling mm -hmm. and um instacart and all the other things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and we're the products of that right we wouldn't mm -hmm. be here if it weren't for that Right. right. I, well, it's so awesome. You know, where can folks, if, you know, in addition to getting this book, where can folks sort of, where's your sort of home, where your works live? Oh, okay. Well, um, you know, I don't, like I say, I have a website at Fordham University, so people can always just contact me there. 
if they want to send me an email. And, um, you know, some of my, some of my works are on the web, some are in different presses, but you know, I'm happy to give people directions if they want any guidance about how they can read some more of my work. I'd be happy to do that. Awesome. So, you know, now, you know, what book to buy, yeah. call to action, voting act, don't give up Fordham university to get in contact with you. Okay. Christiana, thank you so much. And thank you to all the, the, the listeners who I can't see, but thank you anyway for taking the time to tune in. Thank you so much, too. It was a pleasure and a gift. Okay. Take care. Uh, just on, real quick on behalf of Town Hall, I just wanted to thank both of you as well <laughs> for speaking. Um, I just popped in. Um, so <laughs> thank you both so much. And um, thank you for your insight. I think this is like really important for us to get to the root and understand what our value system mm-hmm. is and and dig a little deeper into those things. Yeah. We talk a lot about action and a lot about um, like concrete occurrences, but um, we you know we really need this as this part of it that you're that you're talking about, Dr. Stovall, um, dissecting yeah. our values. So I really appreciate your work um, and your insight. Yeah, because it's important. It's important not to feel powerless, right? Because we do have power, and we can exercise right. Um, and I wanted to thank the audience as well. I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Dr. Stovall's book um, with the link on your page that's going to take you over to Estelita's library, which um, is currently closed due to COVID. So this is the one way you can support them is by um, using their bookshop uh, online. So uh, use that link, browse their selection um, and help support them. Um, and if you're interested in upcoming events, you can check out our calendar online, townhallseattle.org. So um, thank you again. Hopefully, Dr. Stovall in the future will we'll be able to invite you to the, um, the act, our actual building. I hope so. Uh, I hope so. That would be great. So thank you again so much for your time, and, and we'll, we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Christiana, for our, everything. Okay. Thank you. It's great meeting you. Hopefully, Thanks. it won't be the last time. <laughs> I hope not. Absolutely not. Okay. You guys take care and thanks again. Thanks. Okay, bye. Town Hall Seattle presented Professor Tyler Stovall in conversation with Christiana Obi Sumner on January 19th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you are there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.